Father, we thank you so much for this incredible opportunity we have as your people to gather under the banner of Christ and of Christ alone, our good shepherd, the one who loves us and who gave himself for us, as we were talking about earlier in Sunday school. We're so grateful, Lord, for um, the very fact that yours is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Yours is a kingship that cannot be taken away from you. And we, as citizens of your kingdom, are eternally secure in the palm of your righteous right hand. And so, Lord, as we approach the reading and the preaching of your word in this place, we ask, O Lord, that your power and your glory would be on full display, that as your word is preached, that the Holy Spirit, by his powerful work within us as believers, would draw our minds and our hearts and all of our affections to the very throne room of heaven, where Christ is seated. We ask, O God, that uh, for any of us who might be unbelieving in this moment even, or this time, this season of our lives, that you would convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. For truly there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we ask, O Lord Jesus, that you would be seen and savored in this time for the righteous and good and gracious King that you are. Lord, use this time as well as you speak through me as your messenger to instruct our hearts so that we might be a people of praise before you. We pray all this in your holy and majestic name. Amen. Well, friends, again, we're going to be this morning in Psalm chapter 126. As a brief introduction of this psalm, uh, this psalm is actually one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Uh, It was one of the earliest psalms that I memorized years ago, and it's continued just to minister to me over the years. Uh, This psalm is nestled, as many of you probably would know, uh, in between, almost in the middle even, of what we know of as the Songs of Ascent. Uh, Those songs, the 15 short psalms that were especially purposed to prepare the hearts of each one of the people of Israel in ancient days for worship as they made their way from all around Israel and even the surrounding nations, those believers under the Old Covenant, all the way up to the Temple Mount to worship there. Now each of these Songs of Ascent that we have in front of us even, this one being one of them, is reflective by nature. It's meant to cause us to slow down a little bit, even in the midst of our journey, even as the Israelites did up to the Temple Mount, but our own figurative journey on this path of life. And so these psalms, being reflective as they are, continue to cause us to slow, to maybe even pause as we take it in and hear it. And they continue to cause us, on this side of the cross especially, to fix our eyes ever onward toward our Lord Jesus Christ as our Redeemer, our Restorer, but also our Resurrector. And we'll see these themes throughout this passage. Now again, Psalm 126 has held a very special place in my own heart over the last, well, many years, honestly, probably 10, 13 years or so of ministry now. It's often carried my own soul, admittedly, just to be real with you all, but it's carried my own soul through many of life's diverse seasons. Uh, both seasons of, honestly, intense suffering, even spiritual suffering for the sake of the gospel, but also exuberant rejoicing alike. This psalm deals with matters of death. It talks about it. Death, but also resurrected life in Christ, ultimately. And it's proven to me time and time again that God never trivializes or patronizes any one of our life experiences. And I hope that we see that this morning. God is not distant. He's our Father. 
and he loves us and he cares for us. See, in all things, the Lord himself has taught me to see this passage as a balm, a source of strength in many ways for my own personal faith as he, my savior, my redeemer, my restorer, my resurrector, has actually held me together. But friends, the world around us does not look at suffering, especially suffering for Christ, in this way. It's confused by our suffering, isn't it? It doesn't know how to even interpret it when we're suffering for Christ. They think something's wrong with us, perhaps, right? When we're suffering for Christ's sake. See, you and I live in a culture now that constantly tries to temper or even self-medicate or even euthanize our pain and our trials rather than being anchored in the kind and gracious providence of God, especially over us as people. Tom and Colleen and Mary and I were talking about this a little bit, uh, I think it was this morning, maybe a little bit last night as well, um, about the idea of expressive individualism. And if I could recommend a book to you uh, by my old professor at Westminster, Carl Truman, he wrote a really good book about this called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And he goes into all these things. But just to whet your appetite for now, see, expressive individualism, this idea that we can be our own person, do our own thing, make ourselves God, so to speak, of our own lives, it's so uh, just pervasive in our modern-day American lifestyle. And it's almost really become actually the law of our land. We all seem to do whatever's right in our own eyes, don't we? Especially here in our beloved country. And friends, a lot of this is rooted in truly godless secular psychology. Psychology that was rooted in the teachings of Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud, uh, who may have spoken about God, but they actually denied the sufficiency of God, and especially of his holy word, the Bible, in dressing our wounds and in providing true healing for our souls. They rejected the Bible and turned to their own modern psychology apart from the word. And so in many ways, this passage that we're about to read of here actually serves us in a very timely way in our own culture. See, it serves as a timely corrective in our postmodernity, our postmodern or post-liberal world, if you will. It teaches us that we actually need to view each one of life's seasons not through an earthly lens, but rather through a heavenly lens, what the word in Colossians 3 tells us to do. See, this psalmon is equal parts reflection and celebration. It's equal parts a recollection of past blessings from God's own hand and of future blessings still yet to come. And so bottled up within this short psalm is in many ways a sweet refreshment that has been made ready and put away in the cabinet for a while, but made ready for our own souls. And so as we remove the figurative cork from the bottle of God's grace right here in Psalm 126, and as we hear and as we receive this passage, my prayer is that we would drink deeply of the wine, figuratively speaking, of God's goodness this morning and find our hope to be only in him at the last. So here now, the reading of God's holy word in Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. 
He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Friends, this is the inspired, authoritative, and unchanging word of God given to us in love. Well, I know I've had a chance to meet so many of you already at this point, and I haven't had a chance to meet everybody here, unfortunately, but uh, as you've gotten the chance to just get to know me a little bit and I you, uh, you probably have discovered pretty quickly that I'm a pretty uh, hopeful but also reminiscent person. I like to be a little nostalgic, that's just how I'm wired, but I also like to think about what is happening, you know, where is the church going, where are we going, how do we lead the people of God forward? And so I often tend to consider what God has done in the church overall in the past as the basis, though, of my hope for what God will do in the church for years to come. And we see the same hopefulness expressed to us here in Psalm 126. We see it in how the past blessings described in the first three verses form the very basis of the people's longing for God to provide future blessings which they prayed for there in verses four through six. And so the message of Psalm 126 is pretty simple. It's just this, that because God has proved himself faithful in the past, he will prove himself faithful in the future. This is so easy that little children can understand, and yet it is so profound, and it really equips us to move forward in hope, even as a young church plant here, here at Good Shepherd Reformed. And so these will be the basis of our two points for this morning. First, that God has proven himself faithful. And second, that God will prove himself faithful, even in the future. And to help us appreciate this truth, I believe God has lined our passage with what we could call images of contrast. Contrast. Now, for those of you who are into the arts, such as myself, uh, maybe like music or literature or even photography, I'm sure you understand the importance of the use of contrast in your art and in your work. For instance, how do musicians, piano players, right, add depth to their melodies? Well, they play songs in both major and minor keys alike, right? Contrast. How do published authors accentuate their ideas, their writings? Well, they use images that juxtapose one another and make things stick for the reader. How do photo editors or artists enliven each one of their paintings or pictures? Well, they increase the levels of contrast between complementary colors. Our passage in the same way is designed to impress images of contrast to us then, to help the truth of God's word stick with us. And the images of contrast that we see here in this psalm are things such as these. Loss and gain. (laughs) Captivity but also freedom, sowing, but also reaping, and weeping, but also rejoicing. Now, as Christians, we know that the blessings of God, which attend our own souls, are made all the sweeter when we consider the specific sins that God has saved us from, the contrast of who we once were compared to who we are now in Christ, forgiven, free, blood-bought by Jesus. Well, the same was true of God's people under the old covenant before Christ's incarnation here. See, the message of this psalm here in front of us is set against the backdrop, the literal narrative of the harsh exile which Israel experienced in Babylon as a result of her rebellion way back in the 6th century B.C. 
Now, historically speaking, for 70 years, much of Israel had been ravaged and even taken away family by family, clan by clan, into captivity at the hands of the Babylonians, their harsh oppressors. Their livelihoods, their liberties, and their liturgy had all been stripped away from them, one by one, after centuries of turning their backs against the living God himself and bowing the knee to idols that could never deliver or redeem. And yet in the, the Lord in his kind providence continued to show his kindness toward his covenant people. Why? In order to lead them back to a place of repentance, true life in his name. See, through the prophets such as Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the Lord who is jealous for us, his people, declared even ahead of time that he would give his unfailing love to his own in spite of what they had done. And even though he declared this promise to them, he did, of course, simultaneously warn them of the just penalty for their ongoing sin. If you continue in this, I will hand you over, is essentially what he was saying. And that's what happened. But regardless to them, even those captive ones of Israel, the gospel of God's redeeming grace foretold ahead of Christ's incarnation was shared with them. Grace towards sinners by means of a capital M mediator, Christ himself to come. And yet judgment for sin, which no lawbreaker like each one of us here could ever satisfy. But to these same men and women, restoration through the means of, please catch this, resurrection was promised. Resurrection. It's right here in our passage. See, now this psalm is undoubtedly written, of course, with the Babylonian exile in mind. If we consider verse 1, for instance, it tells us this. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. But we need to be really careful in our interpretation of the word fortune here. I know some of our translations say other words, rightfully so. See, these fortunes of Zion, as the ESV translates it, don't necessarily refer to riches and wealth that we can hold in our hands or have in our checkbooks or savings accounts. Rather, the fortunes, I believe, refer to the very lives and the livelihoods of God's people who were in exile. The fortunes of Zion, the people themselves. See, in the original Hebrew text, this is why I believe this, the text is actually a play on words in regard to God's people specifically. In the Hebrew, I believe it's the Masoretic text, which says this, it says, when the Lord turned back the ones of Zion, meaning the people of Zion, who had literally here in the Hebrew, who had been turned back, we were like those who dreamed. When the Lord turned back, the ones who had been turned back, we were like those who dreamed. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, we see the same exact idea present, where in the Greek it reads, literally translated, when the Lord returned the captives of Zion, again, the people themselves, we were like those who dreamed. This says a lot about how God views us. We are his treasure, but we're also a turned back people in our sin. See, the psalm then is not about the restoration of mere riches or wealth. This psalm, though it has often been used to preach prosperity, is not preaching a prosperity gospel over us, that God will give us all the riches and the wealth that we pray for. You know, restore our fortunes, give us our wealth, God. That's not at all what it's saying. 
Rather, this psalm is all about the restoration of God's people by the explicit means of a gracious gift of God known as repentance. And please catch that, that that is a gracious gift of God. Repentance. Like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us. See, what we discover then about God is that he loves to be in the business of turning around the turned around ones. We are the ones who turned ourselves around and yet he turns us back to the right side. And he does this by leading the wayward to repentance and the weary to restoration, by resurrecting what had been otherwise left for dead. How great is our God? But there's an element, indeed, I believe, of God's tangible blessings here, in addition to the heart of repentance that we see here of God for us. See, the last, God will, we know later on in Scripture, he will indeed return in abundant measure all that sin has destroyed in our lives and in our livelihoods. See, at the last, God will indeed return these things. And though we experience suffering here in this life, we have nothing short of the riches of Christ Jesus himself, the King of heaven, to take hold of. And we can even have a foretaste of that here in the already, not yet, as sons and daughters of God himself. See, friends, as we suffer persecutions for the sake of righteousness, we have before us, as I was praying earlier, a heavenly kingdom which cannot be shaken, over which Christ is ruling and reigning. Every spiritual blessing then has already been reserved for us. And we have foretaste of it even here and now as it drips down from heaven, every spiritual blessing dripping down from heaven upon our wearied souls, watering us and causing our faith to grow stronger in the midst of every adversity. Do you believe this? Well, as the late Scottish pastor Samuel Rutherford once encouraged his church in the midst of their own doubt, and sorry, heads up, here comes a really bad Scottish accent. <laughs> Scar not his suffering for Christ. <laughs> for Christ has a chair and a cushion and a sweet peace for the sufferer. Again, in English. <laughs> Scar not at suffering. Don't be scared of suffering for Christ. For Christ has a chair and a cushion and a sweet peace for the sufferer. Don't be afraid of suffering. It's purposeful. And so this psalm teaches this to us. It proclaims this to us. It rightly begins then with both an historical backdrop, yes, of freedom from enslavement, literally speaking, but also an ardent hope, eschatologically speaking, for the future where Christ rules and reigns and sin will be no more. See, as Israel under the Old Covenant recounted God's restoration of times gone by in the first three verses, they couldn't help but then marvel at the fact that God had proven himself faithful in the past and that, as we transition here, he would do so once again, only this time spiritually. See, like those who had become so numbed by the sufferings and the evils that they had faced for so long in their literal physical exile— they suddenly came back to their spiritual senses because of the hardship, because of the suffering. 
when God displayed his mighty hand of deliverance and brought them back from Babylon and around the world back to, at that time, the nation state of Israel. And so like waking up from a deep sleep, these believers under the old covenant were made to behold the mighty hand of God, exercising his authority and his power right before their opened eyes. Verses two and three illustrate this exact truth for us. It says this, then, then our mouth was filled with laughter. Then our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And what was the result, friends? We are glad, exactly. We are glad. See, it's here in our psalm that we read of Israel's excitement for the things of the Lord. Their recounting of the when in verse one paved the way to their then in verse two. The result of God's great display then of kindness toward them in the past caused them to be filled yet again with great exuberance, shouts of joy that could not ever be contained again. For though they had once been a people who had strayed far from the sheepfold of God and had been led all the way into captivity, their release from literal physical bondage had now freed them up to worship God once more on the Temple Mount in Mount Zion. The Lord had restored to them, more importantly though, their sacred interest in his ways and revived their public exercise of worship of him alone. And so liberty had been proclaimed to the captive ones and the news of such liberation found its way to all of the ears of the listening and observing nations around Israel. And so in God's providence, the things that were suffered became things that were learned. Or as the Greeks used to say, pate mata, mate mata. The things suffered were things learned. Well, this brings us to a key turning point in verses four through six. See, though God had already shown great favor to his people, they now knew that their earthly deliverances and restoration of fortunes were not the end-all be-all anymore. It wasn't about getting their land back or their money back or their old homes back. No. See, God had proven himself to be the all-sufficient one to them. And so now the people recognize that theirs was actually then a spiritual need in response to his grace, a spiritual need, though, of restoration that ran so much more deeply than just a mere change in status or position before the eyes of the nations. And so they cried out now in this last half of our passage, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. I think some of your translations might say desert, right? The southern part of Israel, the Negev. In other words, God, we believe now. So deliver us. Do it again, but deliver us now, O Lord, to the uttermost. Because without you, we are as dry as a desert. Like that desert in southern Israel, where Masada is in modern-day Israel. The Negev, the southern part of Israel. We're as dry as a desert without you. And so in light of God's supreme life-giving goodness, they now felt all the more the inherent dryness of their souls, a dryness that could not be quenched by anything other than covenantal, God-given grace. Now, surely they were familiar with passages like the passage we read earlier of Isaiah 55, right, in our call to worship. 
Isaiah 55, which says the following to his people, God to us, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now I believe they believed these things. We actually get it now. We actually understand what they were talking about now. We need God. We need the soul satisfaction that is only in him. And so they knew now that God alone was living water, water for a dry, weary soul, which alone could satisfy them. But what they may not have realized at the time is that the exact sufferings that they had faced in the past had been used in God's providence as a nation over the past 70 years prior to form gullies over time for his grace to now flow more deeply to every last part of their lives. Places where grace might not have reached before without those gullies. This is why I believe the picture of a desert is used here, again called the Negev. And needless to say, the desert that I was alluding to earlier, the Negev, southern Israel, was and still is an extremely dry and hot place. Uh, Mary, you were there back in the summer of this year. I'm sure many of us have been to Israel. If you've ever had a chance to go, highly recommend it if you haven't yet. Just an amazing place to be, um, although not right now, given the circumstances. <laughs> not right now. Um, but I actually had a privilege of leading a trip for Liberty University there, um, I think it was six years ago, uh, seven years ago now, actually. Wonderful time. Got to lead about 60 students there, with 10 of us on staff. And we actually got to go down to what they call Masada, or the Negev at this time, the Negev. And a lot of us probably know what is down there in the southern part of Israel. It's the Dead Sea. They call it dead for a reason. <laughs> Nothing lives there. Nothing lives there because the water is so dense. Uh, fun fact, by the way, if you haven't been there yet, the water is so dense with salt deposits that even the worst swimmer like myself could actually hop in there as I did and float. Like you can't even sink if you wanted to. <laughs> it's actually kind of funny. You kind of bob back up if you try going down a little bit. <laughs> it looks pretty funny. But the desert itself around that part of the Dead Sea, Masada, Negev, southern Israel, is a fascinating place because for as dry as it is, you can still find little spots here and there away from the Dead Sea, little spots of foliage, a little bit of life, signs of life in the midst of a desert, maybe even the occasional oasis, which I saw one, or even citrus trees that grow very well in that kind of arid environment. And you might be wondering, how does that even happen? Like, how can anything grow there if it's the Dead Sea and there's all this salt and no source of water? So it seems. Well, see, because of, well, really, in spite of the dryness, uh, the ground itself has actually been irrigated over time as the water did come. And as they even, to this current day, water the ground intentionally and irrigate the land intentionally to then provide water in the most desperate of conditions. There isn't much water but they purposefully irrigate it right to the exact spot where it needs to go. See, though the desert itself only receives about an inch of water every year, all it takes is for one steady rainfall to come and bring back what was dead to life. This is the same picture, friends, that the Israelites had in mind as they cried out in verse 5, those who sow in tears, watery tears, We'll come back to that. <laughs> shall reap with shouts of joy. 
See, they recognized that though in themselves they had no means of obtaining God's favor, his grace toward them would one day come upon them like a mighty stream of water flowing down into the depths of their souls, exactly as God and his providence, both the good times and the bad, had purposely irrigated out their souls in advance. For the mercies of God are new every morning, and his faithfulness is so great. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the task of the people was to simply obey God by sowing dead seed one at a time and the hope, the living hope, in the God who raises the dead. Friends, do you recognize that each one of you here at Good Shepherd Reformed are in a similar place right now, spiritually speaking, of sowing dead seed? That's the nature of church planting. We sow dead seed in the hope that God will water it and bring what is dead to life. That is, again, the core of church planting. Do you anticipate then God's rainfall when God will bring life and life abundantly to the church here all the more in his good and gracious timing? Do you ever look back, though, and recognize that God has indeed sustained you in the midst of otherwise dire circumstances? I've heard many of the stories already, but dire circumstances and has actually held you all together in spite of the odds. Having met so many of you now at this point, I can see it. I can see it. Your faith is so visible in many ways. I see how God has shaped you, how he's molded you, and how he's even sanctified you, I'm sure over the last several years. But I also see in large part how God has brought about these same times of suffering that we've talked about and hardship so that his grace would be more sweetly enjoyed as we worship him as a community together. See, in principle, each one of life's trying circumstances seems to carve out a little bit of us. But for those of us who have suffered losses of various kinds, myself included, friends, we know that a part of us is unable to ever be experienced in the same way again in this life. Suffering is loss. It is death in many ways to us. But like running your fingers through tender soil, which leaves a trail behind you, or like tilling several lines into the ground, we often look at our lives in times of sorrow as being less than perfect and ideal. It looks a little muddy and messy, doesn't it? And yet, it is precisely that same soil that has been tilled and made tender and purposely dug into that is most primed and perfect for the work of Christ, our master gardener, to go to work. See, we as God's beloved are never left for dead. He doesn't give up on you, even when you might feel like he has. If you're in Christ, he cannot and will not ever forsake you. Rather, we are those, like we read about in Psalm 1, that are planted beside streams of water, purposed to bear fruit in just the right season, And though we often find our circumstances met by unfavorable conditions and ailments and struggles of various kinds, the soil that God has placed us in has been carefully crafted by his own hand to then water us in the exact way that he has also planned. And though we do not fully understand why we go through each one of the circumstances that we might be thinking of even now in this place, especially when they seem to mount up against us one by one by one and weigh us down. 
we as believers would do well to accommodate ourselves, in the words of the Puritan Matthew Henry, to all the dispensations of providence and be suitably affected with them. For as Henry goes on to say, the harps are never more melodiously tunable than after such a melancholy disuse. The long want of mercies greatly sweetens their return. So as a final point of application then, what are the goalies that have been carved out in your own life? As individuals, but also as the people of God here at Good Shepherd. What are the conditions? What are the personal experiences that you have carried and perhaps even felt weighed down by in recent times? And how might we, as a church, come around you and around the rest of us here at Good Shepherd to carry the weight and so fulfill the law of Christ in our midst? How might we, as the family of God, seek to care for one another, especially in view of these things that we carry as individuals, as brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, verses 5 through 6 gives us this final hope-filled promise. It says this, those who sow in tears shall do what? Reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing that seed for sowing. In other words, literally watering the seeds with your own tears and hopes that God will bring life to it, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The fruit, the produce. That is our inheritance in Christ, friends. See, the irony of all of us talk about soil and weather conditions and even sowing seed here in these last two verses of our passage is that every single one, every single part, really, of this process of seeing God's bounty and growth in our lives is entirely contingent upon the author and the giver of life itself. God alone is the sovereign one in the act of tilling, as we've discussed, in cultivating the ground in advance, even in the work of us planting the seeds by faith. He's sovereign over that. Seeds which are as good as dead on their own. He's sovereign in bringing the proper sunlight to bear upon us. And he's sovereign in maintaining the healthy growth of the young plant all the way to full fruit and harvest at the last. Friends, the spirit of God himself is the one who gives growth and life and vitality. And Christ Jesus alone, our Savior, is the one who proves himself to be, as he promised, both the resurrection and the life for all of us who believe. For he is the true vine of whom we are simply the branches. And he himself is, as Isaiah said, the righteous branch into whom we as believers are grafted. For though Christ has died for us, we know that he was raised for us, raised for our justification, that we might have life in him. As we close, know then that God is not apathetic toward us, his church, nor toward you as his beloved daughter or son. And so the station that you find yourself in, no matter what it might be, my encouragement to you this morning is to, to pray, not just pray, but pray with boldness. Pray with boldness, confidence before him so that you might receive grace and mercy to help in time of need. Know that God then has dealt with you bountifully in love and that he has purposed every one of your days to display his loving kindness toward you in Christ with steady streams of mercy that flow down into the deepest parts of our lives. 
and by God's grace, recognize, friends, the ways in which the implanted word, the word of Christ himself, the gospel, is like a seed as well within your own soul that will bear fruit in his good timing for joy that is truly endless is truly found in him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you truly are the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man or woman can come to the Father apart from you. We thank you, O God, for being our gracious King over all, in all, through all. We thank you, O Lord, for being sovereign, for tilling the ground of our lives, even in the ways that we, at times, honestly detest and try to push against. But Lord, we thank you for your sovereign care in tilling our lives for your glory and your grace to make inroads. And so Christ, as we prepare ourselves now for this time of communion, would you encourage us, O Lord, cause our faith to be strengthened in this time so that as your word has now been preached from the word itself, the Bible, and even now through the sacrament of communion, that it would truly communicate to us your grace, grace all-sufficient, grace even for the chief of sinners. So we pray that you be honored and blessed in this time. In Christ's name, amen.